Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, could you go to um, Joshua chapter 9? Joshua chapter 9, we're going to pick up our series in the book of Joshua. But before we get there, let me just um, ask you to cast your mind back to when you were growing up. Now, lots of things about growing up, but the one thing that struck me as I was preparing this is there were certain phrases that my parents said to me as I was growing up that came kind of these mantras that went over and over in my life. And I remember them, and um, I still sort of think about them today in certain situations. And now I am a parent, I find myself saying them to my children. You know, you get these things that you were said to you, and then suddenly you find yourself repeating them, thinking, I sound like my parents. Look with your eyes and not with your fingers. They used to say to me, when we were going into the shop, and you'd be like, you want to grab something, you want to hold it onto something. Another one my parents might say to me, I don't know if it's familiar with you, money doesn't grow on trees when you've asked for the next thing, whatever it was. How about this one in the face of incessant why, 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 because I said so. Anyone else was on the receiving end of that? Another one my um, parents would fling at me was, if I'd ask, where's my, and you can fill in the blank, whatever it was, where's my school bag, where's my homework, where's my... Da, 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 da. Where's my toys? You say, where you left it. Which is altogether not helpful, but that's what it is. How about this one? This is not a hotel. Anyone? Yeah. When you say, when children say, my boys are doing this now, they're saying, that's not fair. That that's one of their things. It's not fair. That's not fair. To which the reply would come back. Life isn't fair. <laughs> Life isn't fair. Oh my goodness. Some of you, freedom in Christ is coming up. I'm just saying. If you need that one, wow. What about this one? Um, when I was your age, da, 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 da. You know, they'd put in some, some, some deep felt heart sob story. When I was your age, we didn't have this or something like that. Yep, I found myself with that as well. What about this one when you said, uh, why, why did you do that? And you'd say, because so-and-so told me so. To which reply would come, well, if they told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? And you're like, yep, you're all very familiar with this. Another one, and what's relevant today, was that they'd often say, because I had a fairly smart mouth, would be, watch what you say. Watch what you say. Because they know if you say the wrong thing, it can get you into trouble. And we all know this. And what we're going to look at today from the book of Joshua is this whole idea of watching what you say. Because what you say can have consequences on your life immediately but also ramifications in the years to come and so if you've been following along with Joshua we've got to the beginning of chapter 9 um, if you've missed it we preached through we started I think September time been going through the, the previous chapters if you've missed any of them they're online on our website so you can go and have a listen and catch up I met someone from the church yesterday who'd recently joined us and I asked them about some, oh yeah, we did some teaching on this thing. And they said to me, oh yeah, I'm going through the sermons of the church. I mean, what do you mean you're going through them? He said, well, I listen to one a day and I'm going through the entire back catalogue. He said, I've just done the Gospel of John. That was 36 sermons we did on John's Gospel. Done that and he's on the next thing. So if you want to catch up, it's there. Yes, they do have the gold star and they are my favourite church member at the moment. But there you go. So... We've began the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is all about the people of God inheriting their promises. 
The big story was way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. God came to a man named Abraham and gave him a promise and said, I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're going to be like the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you a land to dwell in. You go through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the people of Israel grow. There's a fulfillment of that promise. But then you get to Joshua and they take, they're going to take the land. This great promise God has given them. They're going to get ready to inherit that land. And the first five chapters of the book of Joshua, what we call the preparation phase, where they're basically getting ready to take the land. And God speaks to them and says, you've got to be strong and courageous and follow my word. They scout out their land. They meet this woman, Rahab, who's a foreigner an outsider yet expresses faith in the God of Israel and her and her family turn towards God and choose to follow God and they're they're saved. Uh, They enter the land finally by crossing the river Jordan. There's a great miracle there as the people of God enter the land and they set up a memorial and they celebrate the first Passover and they're like we're here, we're finally 400 years after this promise or so, we're finally entering the land. And then we've we've entered what we call the warfare phase, which is chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, which is what we find ourselves in, where they actually start to take the land. We have the Battle of Jericho, very famous one, walls come tumbling down. Then they go and take on the next city, Ai. It all goes horribly wrong. They find out there's sin in the camp. They have to deal with that. They go back to Ai, win the victory, and then we saw last week that there was a, they paused for a moment, which was strategically unwise, but it was what God had asked them to do, and to renew their covenant with um, God, and to remind them why they were there, and that they were God's people, and that's what we looked at last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up at the beginning of chapter 9, as they're kind of continuing their progress into the land. The big idea of this morning is we are to be careful about what we say because it could define our lives. We are to be careful about what we say because it could define our lives, but thankfully God's grace is bigger than our mistakes, is what we're going to see today. God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. All right, we put the first part of the passage up, please. Verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So a little bit of setting the scene. These few verses set up the next chapters, so this chapter and the following ones afterwards. And what we've got this situation where there is suddenly a coalition between the people of the land against Joshua and the people of Israel. Normally these groups would probably be fighting against each other, kind of very different, very independent. But something has caused them to stop and say, let's gang up on Israel. Israel has entered the land, they've had some success, but we need to gang up on them. And it it lists all the people that you saw on the text there. Now, this has been a change, because if you remember, back in chapter 5 it says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea, so the same group heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan River for the people of Israel until they crossed over. It says their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. In essence, they were paralyzed by fear. Israel lent the land. God had dried up the river so a million people or so could cross it and then let the rivers go and they were just terrified. Israel are coming, they thought. Israel are coming. And it says in chapter 6, it said that the, the, the fame of Joshua had spread throughout the land. So this was a guy who was coming that people were afraid of. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of Israel. They were afraid of Israel's God and what they could do to them. So it was kind of a terrifying time. Yet, 
something had changed. Something had changed. Now these people are there and thinking, right, we're going to get together, be as strong as we can, and we're going to come and oppose you and come and fight you. So the question is, what's changed since then? They've taken Jericho, in essence, without, as we would say, firing a shot, because they just marched around it and the walls fell down. But then what happened? They went to Ai and were defeated. A small town defeated this great nation of Israel that had taken out Jericho. So all of a sudden, Israel were beatable. Because up till then, they never lost. They'd taken the kings out across the River Jordan, Shine and Og, which happened in Deuteronomy. They'd come to Jericho. They crossed the Jordan. They'd come to Jericho, flattened it. They'd gone into Ai, which was much smaller than Jericho. They were near as strong. And they'd lost. And why had they lost? They'd lost because of Achan's sin. Because of that, suddenly the enemy realized, do you know what? We can beat these guys because they're not indestructible. They're not always winning. They've actually lost a battle. They went back and then won, but, but, but the damage had been done. They knew Israel could be beaten. And so they gathered together, and, and the list there in chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2 show a completeness of opposition. Everyone is like, we are coming against you. All these groups, all these peoples, we're going to come and fight you. We're going to stay, um, attack you. And it, it begs a question, what would have happened if Achan hadn't sinned? They'd have just taken Ai. And maybe they'd have taken the rest of the land with very limited effort and inherited God's promises. But they didn't. What happened because of Achan's sin is they've set themselves up now for a history of trial and struggle and bloodshed and idolatry and all these things that are going to come in Israel's history. And so the result of that is a coalition of all these six enemies that are going to come before them. And this now frames the rest of the book of Joshua. Due to Israel's mistake, it's sin. It's setting itself up for um, hardship and destruction. All right, let's look at the next part of the chapter and we'll get into the story proper. Okay, it says, But when that inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion the king of Heshbon and to Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was sworn when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when they were filled, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. All right, number one, an oath made sinfully. Contrast this with the first couple of verses. This group from the people of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, they decide rather than making war with Israel, they want to make peace. And it says in the passage they used cunning. They used wisdom, shrewdness. They thought, how can we kind of work this out? How can we work this to our advantage? And they, they, they did this um, in an elaborate ruse, an elaborate con, if you will, that how can we convince Israel we're not who we are so we can get them to make a covenant with us so we can be spared. So they, they got all this stuff together. They got the old clothes out and the old sandals and the old packs and wineskins to make it look like they've been used a long time, that they've traveled for a long distance. They've got the provisions that were old and manky, kind of the stuff you're about to throw out or we'll take them with us. Because actually where they were from where Israel was wasn't far. It was only a few days' journey, so not very far at all. And so if they would make it look like we've traveled a long way, they'll think we've come from a much further distance outside the land where they are. So they, they make this um, kind of a plan up and they go to Israel. And the interesting thing from Israel's history, if you go back into Deuteronomy... What um, God had said to Israel, that actually they could make peace with other nations. Not the nations of the land they were taking, but other ones outside. They actually, God said there, actually, there is provision for that of making peace with others. That the, land, the people in the land were under God's judgment, so they had a particular call and a particular time to do something. But those outside, they could. So there was provision in their law for this. Um, and so if they had been from a foreign land, it would have been all, everything would have been fine, but they weren't. And they came from them and they said, we want you to make a covenant with us. In essence, a peace treaty. And a covenant was a binding agreement between two parties. So two parties would have sent to it, they'd come um, and make an agreement, and then it became binding between them, and that was what they would have to agree for for the future. Now, Israel are initially sceptical. These people turn up, and they're like, who are you? What's going on? They even refer to them as Hivites, which is one of the people of the land. So they're just they're not sure who these people are, so they turn up. Um, the Gibeonites, being smart, being cunning, what do they do? They, 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 they call themselves, we're your servants, they say. So they immediately put themselves lower, trying to set it at ease, thinking if these guys find out who we are, it's going to go badly for us. So we'll call ourselves your servants trying to kind of diffuse the situation for them. And then they say, we've come from a distant land, and they give reasons for it, which would, from an Israelite point of view, would have actually gone down quite well. They said, we've heard of things. What have you heard of? Well, we've heard of your deliverance from Israel. Go back to the book of Exodus. It wasn't that long ago. And they'd heard about the plagues coming through the Red Sea, Moses, deliverance, because Israel, I mean, so Egypt at the time was like the superpower, but they were the slaves and they'd broken free. That was kind of huge news at the time. We've heard about your victories across the Jordan in the book of Deuteronomy, where they took out Shan and Og, two other kings who had opposed them, and they'd been judged by God. Um, what, they, what didn't they mention? Which two battles did they not mention? Because it might have given the game away. They omitted Jericho. And AI, because they were like really close. So we won't mention them. We'll say we've heard about these other things from outside the land that we're in. Um, and, they, and then they offer evidence. So they told them, we've heard about your God, but look at over, look at our clothes. We're wearing rags. Look at our wineskins. They're all patched up. They're leaking. Look at our food, our bread. It's about to kind of, you know, go away to nothing. 
And so we, we have come from a long way. And it seems Israel kind of were took in by their story. And then we get to verse 14. If you've got an actual Bible in front of you, look at verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions. I will check, we'll check your story, effectively what they're saying. Show us the evidence. Oh, look, here it is. But. Usually buts are bad. You add a T and you get a but, and that's, just, that's never good. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. God has specifically asked them to do it. Back in the book of Numbers, the priest Eleazar said, you specifically come and ask counsel of me. That's why I'm here. I'm God. I know everything. So come to me and ask counsel of me when you're making decisions because I am the Lord and I know everything. And I can help you and I love you and I'm for you and you're my people. And he says, come and speak to me. But what did they do? They relied on their own wisdom rather than God's. Joshua and the leaders of the people were satisfied with the story that they'd been sold by the Gibeonites. And it says at the end there they did two things. It said they made peace with them, which means they'd spared their lives, which obviously were from the Gibeonites. That was their goal all along. But they made a covenant with them, which would have been ratified by an oath. Where it says they swore they would have made some binding oath. They swear to do certain things to spare their life, etc., etc., And in this case, Israel's sin was relying on their own wisdom and intelligence. They presumed to know. They were making a huge decision, declaring a peace treaty with another nation, and they assumed they knew better. They assumed they didn't need God's input, God's wisdom, God's counsel in this situation, so they did not seek it. And this manifested itself in prayerlessness. They didn't go and speak to God. They didn't go and speak to God. I found this quote while I was researching this. It says, The greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. The greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer, which we often preoccupy ourselves with, but unoffered prayer. They didn't go and seek the counsel of God. And that is a huge thing. It's a huge thing for them, a huge thing for us. To being a, a people who do not pray is massive. People who do not seek God's counsel, seek God's wisdom. Because what does it say about us? It says, we know what we're doing. We don't need any help. We can make this work ourselves. We were particularly, we've been specifically called as Christians to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. There are, there are words all through the New Testament to be a people of prayer, examples of prayer, models of prayer, everything, that we should be a praying people. While I was um, sort of preparing this, I got a flashback from my um, very early days as a child being taken to an Anglican church and a song we used to sing there, which you may have heard um, you may not have heard for a while, you may know it. It probably sounds very twee now. And if we played it to you, we'd probably think, well, that sounds old and a bit naff. But it doesn't, un- it doesn't mean that the force of the words are not still relevant to us. It says this. It's a song called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Anyone? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And here's the, here's the bit. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. 
Can we find a a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And the point for the Israel, point for us, is when we're making big decisions, we're making small decisions. Actually, it's good to go to God and pray and ask him. It says in James, if you want wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask for it. If you need wisdom, just ask for it. I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what's going on. Ask it. I can think of, in my life, some of the big decisions I've had to make Kind of, I've always been ones where you think, I don't know if this is right. I have to pray. I have to seek guidance. I have to seek wisdom. When I was uh, thinking about asking Melanie to marry me, it was like, is this a good thing? Because someone once said to me, um, a wedding ring is the world's smallest handcuff. Choose your cellmate wisely, they said. And you're like, is that meant to be helpful or just freak me out? Because they're both... But it was, that was one of those things. You think, you, I need wisdom in this, and I don't know. And obviously we read our Bibles, and the Bible says a few things about marriage. It's good you marry a believer. It's good that they're not married to anyone else, and it's good they're not a close relative. You think, well, that narrows it down, but not a lot. You know, what about, is it this person, Lord? So I prayed, and I prayed, and I got godly counsel. And I said, can you pray? Because I just need to know that I'm making a wise decision here, because this is going to define my life. For the next however long, till death do us part. And so I prayed. When we came to think about planting the church here, it was another one of those decisions where actually church planting is good, I can read it in the Bible. But is it right for me? Is it right for us now in our situation? Should we do it? Is it right to come here to this town, in this city? Is this, is this what we should be doing, Lord? And so we prayed. And so our challenge you is, how's your prayer life going? Really? We started beginning of the year two weeks ago and we laid out a kind of a focus for the year and we had our sandwich, didn't we? And it said we, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that was the one bit of bread, fellowship breaking, um, fellowship breaking of bread and then prayer. So the prayer and the apostles' teaching the Bible were the two bits of bread and in the middle was our filling, which was the community life we lived together. And so this is, last week, ironically, we looked at the Bible and what it meant to follow God's law and this week, prayer has come up. How are you doing in prayer? How is your prayer life going? Is prayer a daily habit for you? When you come to the, you know, it should be a habit in terms of relationship. We pray to Jesus. We thank God for all he's done. We ask him for daily provision. But when it comes to the big things in life, big things you're facing, house moves, job moves, career changes, starting serious relationships, all those things, are we people of prayer? Trying to make it something we do as a church. So we start going, you know, before we get into things, we need to be praying people. It's why we've built the church the way we have, with prayer in our life groups, prayer every third, where we gather together. We need to be a praying people. And I just want to challenge you again, beginning this year, make some good decisions on prayer. Because we're about to find out that you make mistakes in some of these things without seeking counsel, and it can haunt you. All right, let's go on to the next section. At the end of three days, after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, and three other words that are hard to pronounce. But the people of Israel did not attack, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us. 
because of the oath we've sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of waters for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So imagine the scene. These guys from afar had come. They'd made a, they convinced them, we're from, we're from way over yonder. We'll make a covenant with you. Maybe they'd left. Great, we've made a covenant. We will return to our land, they say. It's a long journey. So off they went. Meanwhile, Israel is sending out scouting parties to check out the land because they've got a a call from God to take this land and they suddenly come across these towns and think, aye, aye, those guys we met are from here and it's just down the road. They're not from a distance. We just had a fast one pulled on us. So they go back to the leaders and say, oh my goodness, guess what? Those people we made a covenant with, they're the ones God says we've got to take the land from. What do we do? And so they kind of find themselves in a bind. And what's the decision they make? Do they just ignore the covenant and go and attack them anyway? Do they honour the covenant? What we see here is an oath kept faithfully. Now because Israel had sworn the oath, oaths were an incredibly solemn affair in the Bible. If you read through them, you see them come up again and again. They were binding. More so than they didn't involve contracts like we have today where you sign bits of paper in quite the same way. But they were, they were almost verbal things, often with a sacrifice, but they held greater power over the people who were involved, the two parties. I mean, you didn't break an oath. You didn't break a covenant with someone. They were binding kind of in perpetuity. It was what they did. God himself made oaths. And he would, make, he would swear by himself that things happen. We find it in Genesis where he says... Um, to Abraham about having your, um, through your son Isaac, all the nations of the world will be blessed and you'll be a mighty nation. God made oaths. And if you broke an oath or you swore an oath falsely within it, it was a great sin and you were under kind of um, God's wrath and God's judgment in that. And we found that even oaths that are done falsely or kind of oaths that are kind of done with a bit of deception were fine. Because what happened with um, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau? Do you remember the story? Isaac, Abraham's son, he had two sons himself, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, which means deceiver, when you name a kid deceiver, you're like, what do you think is going to happen? He, he tricked his brother into getting his birthright. He got his dad, who was old and blind and decrepit, to bless him. And then when Esau comes in, he's like, Dad, where's my blessing? He says, I've already given it to your brother. I can't give it to you. Because the oath was binding. I'd spoken it out. I had done it. And so the people of Israel, the, the, the men of Israel come back and they start grumbling against the leaders. Those guys, they're over there. Let's go and attack them. And the leader's like, we can't. We've made an oath. We've made a decision. And it couldn't be broken. They even say, if we break the oath, we're the ones who are going to face God's wrath. We're the ones who are going to face God's wrath. So what do they do? They had to actually follow it through. They had to keep it. They had to be faithful. They had peace with them. They couldn't attack Gibeon. They couldn't attack its cities. What they did do was say, well, okay, if you're not going to fight it, we're actually, you're going to be kind of our servants, which is what they wanted. They said, we're your servants. They said, so you're, you've got a role within the city. You're going to cut wood and you're going to draw water for the congregation. So they'd, have, they'd be integrated into Israel, but they'd have this role of servants within it. But actually, it was something that they had to honor. Because they'd made a decision, they'd have to honour it. And interestingly, if you track this through the rest of the Bible, the people of Gibeon come up again and again in the Old Testament. 
There's a bit in 2 Samuel 21 where Israel suffers a famine. And David, who's the king, says, why are we having this famine, God? Why have you judged the people of Israel? He said, because King Saul, your predecessor, attacked Gibeon and killed some of the men of Gibeon. He broke this agreement. And this was generations later. He says, you broke the generations, so you are under God's wrath. As they repented and they dealt with it and it left. But actually, God remembered what they'd done maybe even hundreds of years later if you track the history forward, for the people of Gibeon because Israel had made peace with them. And so they were forced in that situation. They had to keep the um, oath they had made. So watching what you say becomes really stark in that situation because the covenant they had made, the covenant they had agreed to, was still binding on them. Israel was to be faithful to the promise they had made regardless of how they had been made. The word meant something and it had to be held onto. And... It's a real challenge for us here as believers in actually, are we people who are going to keep our word? When your parents said to you, watch what you say, there is a real power behind those words. Are you going to watch what you say? Because you're going to have to own your words. And we've made commitments. As a Christian, the most obvious one is you made a commitment to Jesus. When you became a Christian, you said... I turn away from my old way of life. I repent of my sin. I put my faith and trust in you. You, I recognize you as the Lord of my life, as my Savior, as my King, and I choose to follow you all the days of my life. That's the commitment you made. If you're a Christian here and you didn't realize that, someone hasn't given you the full job description, you know, terms and conditions, this this is what it means. And Jesus in turn said certain things. Fine, you're going to follow me. I'll always be with you. My spirit will be with you. You're going to have peace and you're going to have joy. But you'll see it's going to be tough and hard and the world is going to hate you and it's going to be full of hardships as well. But actually, our first and foremost commitment is to Jesus. And I challenge you today, are you keeping your word? Are you keeping your word to him? Are you following him faithfully in all the areas of your life? Are you following his word, the Bible, which we said we need to be looking at? Focus on. Let's get our mind into it. When he says certain things, when he says about how you should live your life, how you should live your money, how you should treat your children and your wife and and the colleagues you work with, what your view of church is and how you live those lives, how you serve the poor and other things. Are you doing that? Are you being faithful to that commitment? Because you've made a commitment and you need to honor it. What about those of us who are married, which is the most powerful human commitment that we have? We make a covenant with another individual that says we will love them and we'll stay faithful to them all the days of our life till one of us dies. That's the only kind of out we say. In, what's it, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sick and health, those kind of things which kind of cover everything. We want to stay committed to you. That's what we want to do. As much as it depends on me and us, that's what I'm going to do. If you're married, are you staying committed to your marriage vows, staying committed to your spouse, loving them, serving them, putting them first above others. What about in our personal commitments? If you're a worker and you have a job, are you faithful to your work? Because when you started working in a place, you made a commitment to the, the company, the boss, whoever it was who employs you. And actually, you've got to put in an honest day's work. You've got to work the hours, they say. You've got to apply to the policies they put in place. You've got to be committed there to all those situations. What about your personal friendships? Are you committed to your friends 
And actually say, I'm going to be a good friend. You can even get the trite thing. Are you committed to your word? When you say you're going to be there at 10 o'clock, are you there at 10 o'clock? You know? Are you? We need to be men and women who are committed to our word. The Bible says that your yes be yes and your no be no. Simple as that. Not making excuses. We're going to do what we can. And we need to honor our word and honor our commitment, regardless of kind of where it came from. All right, last one. Here we go. Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, "What We are very far from you when you dwell amongst us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you will never be anything but servants, cuts of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cuts of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The last one, an oath honored graciously. Joshua calls them to their accounts. What's, why did you do this? What's going on? And he said, and they've obviously explained, we didn't want to get destroyed. Their motives kind of come out. And what do they do? They place themselves, interestingly, under Joshua's mercy. Whatever you think is right, do it. And so Joshua says, you're going to be servants. You're going to be servants for the people. And that's kind of what you're going to be. That's your lot cutters of wood and drawers of water. But what he does is he shows them mercy because he delivers us from the people because the people are grumbling and thinking we should be attacking these guys. These guys are our enemies. And Joshua says no. He offers them grace. He says actually we've made an oath of them. We're going to honor it. We're going to keep it. They're actually going to become part of our congregation, if you will, part of our people. They're obviously not direct descendants of Abraham, but then neither was Rahab and her family. And they're going to come and they're going to be part of us. And the interesting thing in response to Joshua's mercy, if you read forward, and I mean hundreds and hundreds of years to the book of Nehemiah, if you know the story of God's people, they take the land, you have the period of the judges, and then you get the period of the kings, Saul and David and Solomon, the kind of the big names, and the kingdom divides, and you have a host of kings who generally get worse and worse. And then ultimately the, 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 the kingdom is split into Judah and Israel and they are eventually destroyed by Assyria and then Judah is destroyed by Babylon and they're taken all off into exile, into Babylon, the people. And then years later after that, a group of them return to Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls because Jerusalem has been flattened. And then we read in Nehemiah chapter 3 and in Nehemiah chapter 7 that part of the group that returned from Babylon in exile were from Gibeon. So hundreds of years later, the people of Gibeon were still part of the people of God and they were returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to continue to serve the people of God. And the Gibeonites were spared judgment and allowed to serve in God's house. Gibeonites were spared judgment and they were allowed to serve in God's house. Who does that remind you of? You guys. 
We rightly sit under God's judgment. We are rebels, we are sinners, we are enemies of God. We are prideful, arrogant people who don't want anything to do with God. Yet in God's mercy, he sent a saviour. He sent someone to die in our place for our sins. Take the punishment we deserve, which is big in its own right. But then God says, not only that, you're going to come into my house. And you're going to serve in my temple. And you're going to serve before my altar. But not even as servants. Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore. What do I call you? Friends. You're now going to become part of my people and you're going to serve in my house and you're going to serve in my temple. Not only are you going to serve in my temple, you are actually going to be my temple because I will dwell in you by my spirit. What grace and mercy. God, Joshua extends it to Gibeon and they become part of God's people and they become part of God's story through the next hundreds of years. But actually for us, we're part of the big story. Because of what Jesus has done, he willingly takes into it. We don't have to deceive him. We couldn't anyway to kind of try and get in. He willingly takes us when we were enemies, when we were far from him. He says, I will save you from yourself and I will bring you into my kingdom and you can serve in my temple, be part of my people and one day we will be with him forever in the new heavens and a new earth. What a wonderful message for us today. Do you want to stand? I'm just going to pray for us to finish. Can the band come back up? We're going to spend some time worshipping Jesus. Do you want to just close your eyes? I'm just going to pray. With a few things we hit there, and it would be great just to Go through them and see if God wants to say anything to you in this situation particularly or you know that there's something we've been prodding there. The first thing kind of just felt would be good to just touch on was the way that story began was effectively the consequences of sin. Achan's sin in that case. But I just want to give you a moment now before we spend some time worshipping, put our focus on Jesus. If you know there's things in your life that you need to deal with, do it now. Just repent before God if you know there's things you've been going on because the reality is that story shows us even the sin of one individual can have ramifications way beyond them that affect many and that's the result that's what sin does we might think it's just us it's ours no it has a ram it'll affect your relationships your family your workplace the church it'll just affect everything and if you know there's things in life just take a moment to repent bring God and say God I just want to repent of that that attitude, that action, that thing, whatever it is. If you're not a believer here today and you know that actually I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be, actually you need an opportunity to turn away in the kind of the big sense of the word. Actually, I want to turn away from my life and put my faith and trust in Jesus. And if you know that's you, you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can just speak to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him and turn away from him. And we'd love to chat with you about that and kind of what that actually means and help you through that because it's a big decision. It's not something we take lightly. But if that's you and you know that's you, we'd love to chat with you at the end. And then let's bring it forward in the story. They did not seek the counsel of God. If you know you're facing big decisions in your life, um, career move, job move, relationship thing, whatever it is, 
I want to urge you to seek the counsel of God. Even if you know you're making things that might be small decisions, seek the counsel of God. Pray. Read his word, but bring it to him in prayer. Bring it to him in prayer. And if you know that's you and you know the things, just start talking to him about it now. Just, this is the thing, Lord. Seek counsel. Seek counsel of God. Seek counsel of godly people who also seek the counsel of God on your behalf because we pray for one another. What about being people of, your, of our word, people who are committed? Maybe there's a moment here you know that you've been flip-flopping, dilly-dallying, lukewarm when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Just make a stand now and say, God, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm going to be committed to you. Have I just... I'm on, I'm on, good. If you know there's a relationship that you need to commit to because you've just been letting it drag, make it now. If you know there's things you need to repent of, deal with it now before Jesus. Earth it and say, this is it. And if you know there are things in your life, please talk to someone. It's part of our community. Grab someone and say, this is what it is. I just want to just share it, say it out loud because that has power. Speaking things out, even in a positive sense, we can do it in a negative sense, but in a positive sense, it really helps us. And now I'm just going to pray and then we're going to worship. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that regardless of our own mistakes, you saved us. Regardless of kind of the errors we make, you still love us. Lord, I thank you in you that we are holy and righteous and we've been drawn into your family and we are part of your people who serve before you. Lord, we, we, we get to dwell in the house of God forever. We get to have the Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for your great sacrifice, Lord. We thank you for your just willingness to save us when we weren't willing to be saved, Lord Jesus. We praise you for your grace and mercy on our lives. We want to say we love you, Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.